Hello, and welcome to the Project Good podcast. I'm your host, Anne-Marie Hilton. Project Good is a social impact podcast interviewing experts and advocates about pressing problems that we face globally and hearing how they suggest we move forward in the future. The Project Good podcast is brought to you by Project Good Work. The goal of this podcast is to inspire people and organizations to develop a mindset that can move others to positive action regarding the complex social issues facing people on the planet. For February, we have a special edition with Hans Hegelman discussing renaissance and change making. Hans is a social entrepreneur. He has developed visionary solutions to improve education from Harlem to India. Hans grew up in Spanish Harlem, New York. His home was Exodus House, a pioneering residential drug treatment center started by his father. Hans' parents were his first teachers in the importance of service to others. He went on to attend Princeton University and Columbia University School of Law. After law school, he went on to work as a prosecutor, chief counsel to U.S. Senate subcommittee, and as a defense attorney. In the 90s, he shifted his mission to work with children who have been underserved by the educational system. This led him to founding the East Harlem School at Exodus, an independent school that predated charter schools at charter legislation in New York City. His work there was honored by Essence Magazine through an Essence Award, the Robin and the Robin Hood Foundation. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Hans, who is a Renaissance change maker, immersing himself in many fields and lending his knowledge and heart to a plethora of causes. Hans has experienced and been seen in a number of social change movements, which have shaped his dynamic movement of change. Let's get into the interview. Hans has been honored with an Essence Magazine Award and the Robin Hood Foundation Heroes Award. It has brought him national media coverage from CNN, the New York Times, People Magazine, and the major television networks. He has worked in law, education, personal development, health, and the nonprofit space, and knows more than a thing or two about bringing and implementing change in organizations, people, and the world. Today, we reflect on the continuous life work of Hans, the current executive director at the Tutwiler Communication Education Center, and we will learn how to push ourselves to be the best change makers we are meant to be. Welcome, Hans. Hi, Anne-Marie. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Hi. Uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation as well, and um, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this conversation because you have, um, you know, experienced uh, so much in life. I guess I would say, um, from you know, uh, of course, you know, you're 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 living in your body, but um, uh, from what I have, uh, you know, learned about you, you have really what I would say lived, right? Um, and you know, a lot of times people think that uh, just living is about you know um, uh, enjoying and and traveling, but the the truth is. I think that you have shown that living um, uh, means really, you know, getting involved uh, and not just being like, you know, um, uh, self-concerned. So um, in today's world, that's very hard to find <laughs> as we see that, um, you know, we have everything uh, from uh, social media to the rise of narcissism, narcissism um, and uh, just, you know, uh, people uh, isolating and becoming self-contained. And so for you um, to be a person who has decided to 
um, you know, uh, spread everything that you have learned in, in life, it's, uh, you know, it's inspiring. And so that's why I was looking forward to interviewing you the most. Um, so before we get into the interview questions, I always like to have a little fun with guests and get to know them a little personally by um, asking them a question about themselves uh, so that they can think uh, a little bit uh, deeply at who they are. So what would you say is uh, driving you in the second half of your life? You know, the, my, my, my motto is becoming an ancestor worth remembering. And it's gone fast, Anne-Marie. I, I, <laughs> I still have to remind myself. I, I hear a story about somebody in, in their 60s, and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm going to be different when I'm that age. I'm like, hold it. Wait, you're 65. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and, 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 and I realize I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the last quarter, and, and I, I, that's emphasized when I'm around the young people that I work with. And so it's moving as hard as I can into, into making this, this final act perhaps my my best act. I don't know. I, I didn't mean to scare you by saying second half, because these days, you know, people, you, you probably have another uh, 40, maybe 50 years. <laughs> you never know uh, the way that technology in life goes these days. Uh, you know, a lot <laughs> there, of people make that, it yes. to um, 100. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so you might I'm... just be still, you know, still in the, the baby, baby, baby moments. <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping. <laughs> yes but there, there's still there's still still a lot of work to be done and mm -hmm. yeah there's st still a lot of work to be done and and you know I'm, I'm in the Mississippi Delta and and I still have my New York energy and so I try not to overwhelm people with that while I'm down here but 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 a lot of who I am and why I do what I do was created in in that kind of cauldron of, of New York City Yes, but, you know, I think, um, well, you know, I've only been to Mississippi a few times during a, um, uh, what I was doing was a, a, a vacation. Um, so I guess I was there already in a slow pace. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes having that, uh, you know, um, of course, I've always lived in semi-fast cities, uh, is, is a great motivator um, for, for people. At least that's what I think, <laughs> not living in a slower, slower pace life, so... Um, so I think that's wonderful. So let's, I guess, introduce you to the audience um, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, um, uh, who is Hans uh, Hagman? <laughs> who, who are you? Who were you? And who do you hope to be? Well, you know, when, when you were talking about me, I, I really felt like I had been seen because from early on, I have tried to to be a part of the times that I've been in, and 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 it's and it's it's been everything from looking out the housing project windows in East Harlem and watching President Kennedy and the astronaut John Glenn go by, to waiting at home for my father to come back from yet another protest that he was engaging in with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's it's having a mentor uh, who's who's moving on in age but but who's very important to me when talking about things like policing in the United States. He was a, a former speechwriter for Bobby Kennedy. It's being at Princeton University, a place of tremendous privilege and 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 people with tremendous wealth uh, and achievement, students coming in, 
but saying, you know what, I'm glad I'm here, but I can't just sit back. Uh, there, there are things that I need to do um, beyond becoming, quote, a Princeton graduate. And so what that included was uh, becoming a big brother, big a part of the big brother, big sister program. Um, my freshman year, I'm actually still in touch with the young man uh, who had been in a uh, uh, a residential facility at the time when I was his big brother. He he found me after decades, uh, and so we're back in touch. But also, it was joining uh, Princeton's ROTC. This was post Vietnam. The military was not a real uh, wonderful option for anybody just because of what had happened during Vietnam. And certainly, if you were at Princeton, why were you a part of ROTC? And, and, and part of it was because I had always been taught that you have a responsibility to something larger than yourself. It's not enough to say that I have this Princeton degree or Columbia University School of Law degree, and uh, that's going to open doors, and I'm sure I'll do some good along the way. It had to be more affirmative for me. And so uh, I was a member of Princeton's ROTC, and one of my pals was the, the recently retired chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley. And, we, we spent uh, many hours in the, in, in the woods around Princeton together. Um, I, I went to the 101st Air Mobile Division Training School in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Didn't need to do that either. Um, and, and that required, among other things, rappelling out of helicopters, perched 100 feet in the air, and having a fear of heights. That, that wasn't the most natural move for me to make. But again, whether it was the ROTC, whether it was becoming part of the Big Brothers, Big Sisters, whether it was becoming an active participant in getting Princeton to divest its investments in the then apartheid government of South Africa. I, I, was, I was taught to the, never just sit on the sidelines. My, my mother, who was an activist in the community, set that example. My father, who, as I had mentioned, in addition to marching with, with Dr. King, had created this residential drug treatment center and where both he and my mother taught me the power of redemption and faith and service in, in, in the lives of, of other people. Uh, there was no other way I could go than, than to a life of service. And I don't, I don't, it, it's, it's not for everybody. I think more people certainly have space in their lives to figure out who they are beyond their own narrow concerns. And as you mentioned, it's tougher to do that with, with the advent of social media, AI, and other things today, and, and the, the political divisions that we see in the country. But I, I still think it's imperative if, if we're going to survive as a society for people to, to look beyond themselves and, and say, you know, what is my responsibility here, particularly to those of us who have been given so much. I, I grew up we were not wealthy by any means, uh, lower middle class, most likely. I, I remember some of the hand-me-down clothes that uh, were actually a very good quality, but that I got made fun of for wearing. But again, that's part of, of, of who I was. But because I also knew how incredibly privileged I was to be on scholarship to an elite private school that then allowed me to take that next step to a Princeton, that allowed me to take that next step to a Columbia University, and that's also played out in my professional life. And so that's, 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 that's led me on a path to, to um, starting w when I began. I, I was convinced, I think, about the age of eight. Uh, and I think the book was The Lawyers or something by a Martin Mayer, who actually had been friends of my parents. 
a friend of my parents. And uh, he gave me a copy, a signed copy of this big book that he had written on, on being a lawyer and uh, hardcover book. I eventually read it, but certainly at eight years old, I, I wasn't going to read it. But I knew that I, I'd seen the struggles my parents had in, in, in terms of the work that they were doing. But I was going to take a different path and, and use the law to, to right the wrongs that my parents had been trying to, to right. And so uh, I, I, I stuck to that path. And as, as you had mentioned, I, I had a number of different um, roles in the law. And I wanted, to, I wanted to see where would I be able to make the most difference. And, and, and I, I'm glad I was where in each of those places. I'm, I'm glad I got to see how laws are made in the U.S. Senate. Um, it was a little disappointing, certainly <laughs> eye-opening. I'm, I'm glad I worked as a, as, as, as a prosecutor in, in Robert Morgenthau, who was a legendary prosecutor in New York and nationally. I was uh, glad to be a prosecutor in his office. Uh, and I'm also glad that I was uh, able to work as a public defender. And, and, and if I hadn't been in each of those positions, then there were lives that, that I wouldn't have been able to positively affect. But at some point I said, no, I, I, I've, I've got to, to take myself off to the side a little bit and have more of an impact on, on how the system operates. And I, I couldn't do that, in, in my opinion, by being so deeply involved in the system. And, and so that, that led to the creation of um, an independent school that uh, I co-founded with my brother that he runs 30 plus years now. Um, then it was in a, in a building that had been the residential drug treatment center requiring a lot of maintenance. Uh, I, I had to take care of rat patrol. I had to, had to clear up uh, faulty boilers because we couldn't necessarily uh, you know, afford uh, you know, plumbers and, and, and electricians and so forth. So I had to do whatever I could do there. Um, I cooked two hot meals a day. I taught classes. I did the fundraising. I put the board together. And this was also a time where there were 2,400 homicides in New York, um, mainly because of the crack epidemic. And at one point early in, in, our, in our career at that school, my brother and I had uh, death threats taken out against us because we were interfering with the drug traffic on the block by having a school. That, that hadn't, I, I hadn't, hadn't considered that. I knew it was going to be hard opening a school. A, again, as you had mentioned, it predated charter legislation in New York. So this was a first impression to a number of people and trying to fundraise for something like this. I had friends who stopped talking to me because I was no longer a lawyer. Um, they, I had been defined by, by my status, my professional status, and found to be lacking when I decided I was going to be an educator. So I was starting from way back, and then you have these death threats. And so a few years, I, I was licensed by the New York City Police Department within two weeks to carry a handgun to protect myself. And there were times I would sit at the end of the school day, and my days were long, six in the morning, and I would leave around seven at night. Uh, and a couple of times I would leave in tears because I didn't know if I was going to make it home to see my then infant daughter. Um, and I would have people across the street openly sporting firearms, laughing, saying, you know, one of these days you're not going to make it home. Um, and then having to come back the next day and do it all over again and, and, and be there for the children, be there for, for donors who, who wanted to hear about wonderful things that were going to happen. And I had to learn how to keep it together 
very quickly. And and so early on, I, I had to teach myself about self-care and whether it was learning about John Kabat-Zinn's work, uh, getting getting certified as um, an Ashtanga yoga teacher by one of the Western original yogis, David Swenson, uh, whether it was becoming uh, a Reiki master under a guy named William Lee Rand, uh, becoming certified in, in hypnosis. I mean, all of this is in the 90s, the early 90s, before it became that popular. And and certainly not in not in my neighborhood of East Harlem, but all of those things were tools that I needed to, to, to move past that. And uh, as I said, the school evolved. It's in a brand new multi-million dollar building that then Mayor Bloomberg broke ground on. Uh, and, and after nine years there, I moved on to a larger nonprofit that was in distress, um, 350 employees serving thousands of kids, but whose executive director had, had died uh, very suddenly from pancreatic cancer. And they had an interim who they had brought from the corporate world. Uh, the board then consisted of um, a, a lot of wealthy masters of the universe who felt that uh, if they brought in a, a, a corporate figure, that he would be able to fix whatever was wrong with the organization. That didn't turn out to be the case. And so I went there for seven years, had, had a great time, made some wonderful relationships there. Um, and, and now here I am in the, in the Mississippi Delta, a place I never thought I would find myself and, and a place where people who knew me just are still having a hard time wrapping their head around. But, but I'm glad I'm here. Wow. You know, you, you have uh, you went from in, in my mind uh, when you were first telling Maurice your story as a, a child. I was uh, picturing you, um, and I guess don't don't laugh, but I guess it it, it kind of um, goes along. Um, is that uh, you know for you're you're sort of like a, a preacher's kid, and what I mean like by that is that um, when uh, you know children that their parents are pastors and preachers, they grow up, um, they're kind of uh, you know pushed and forced into these spots. And they either go two ways, either they decide, okay, I'm going to go with the flow. And this is, uh, you know, uh, I guess how our family is shaped and become, um, you know, part of the ministry, or they decide I'm going to become a wild rock star and, uh, you know, run off and yeah, do all the things that I was not allowed to do. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, that's that's how I, I guess I, I picture your your start. And then the fact that you, um, I guess, in a way, um, as you were saying, you were kind of uh, uh, groomed into that, um, but you decided to choose that. And so um, that is always, you know, uh, I guess, um, amazing for someone to choose that path, because I really do believe when you are uh, raised by parents that have um, such a focus on service, um, it is, you know, um, it's hard sometimes to comprehend as a child because, you know, um, not that children are, are purposely, but they, they don't understand because they're growing. Those are the times where you're just like, you know, but what about um, me and what I, I want? Um, and so that, you know, already speaks to the how amazing you are as a person that you just naturally had those seeds in you um, and decided to move in that direction um, even, you know, even if you were, uh, you know, surrounded by it, because the truth is you, you didn't have to go that route. Um, and, you know, I, I find it, um, uh, amazing because you also, I, I also started picturing the thought of a war zone, 
right? And I was picturing a war zone because this is, um, uh, you know, hard to believe, but this is America, <laughs> as they always say, this is America. But it sounds like you went through a war zone just in your own backyard um, and all the different things that you encountered and the things you've uh, uh, learned. And I guess we're seeing um, uh, it in real time now on the television, the things that were um, hidden um, that people didn't know about um, the difficulties of struggle, of change, of the people who are trying to do something positive, but the, um, uh, you know, unbelievable or sometimes strange obstacles that come against them um, when they are trying to actually do something good. Um, and I was just amazed that, you know, you had to go through all those difficulties in a school. Um and definitely, I would never have thought about, uh, you know, drugs and um, uh, being, a, you know, a barrier that you would have to um, to deal with. So all I can say is, wow, you've been through a, a war and well, some. Well, it's, 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 you know, <laughs> I, I actually, it, it was a funny with, with, the, with the, the, the drug family that ran the business um, at, at, at one point for a variety of reasons they asked to set up a meeting with, with me. Uh, and, and that was negotiated by um, a, 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 a police officer who also grew up in the community. He was one of four kids raised by a single dad who had been a Vietnam veteran. Um, this guy was a hero cop, and that's a whole nother story. But um, So we, we set the meeting, and the head of the family said, well, what do you want? He says, we've been getting a lot of pressure from the cops from the, and from the black Muslims as well. Um, who reached out and said, look, we, we know your father was white. My mother was an African-American who came up in the Great Migration, and she and my father met, fell in love in Chicago. He was a, a white man from Nebraska in, in, you know, in a time when it was illegal um, to, 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 to do that, and 96% of people felt there was something immoral about interracial marriages. Um, but that's, that's, that's who, who they were. Um, but black Muslims had reached out to us, that we understand you're going through some problems with the, the drug dealing on your block. We are going to put out the word that we will soldier on that block until they back off. So I, 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 I had been a, a, an assistant DA. I had cops that I had worked with. Um, I had boxed in a tournament for a police officer, Stephen McDonald, who had been um, shot and wounded, who had forgiven the, the teenager who had done that to him and put him in a wheelchair. But he, he needed medical expenses, and I was the only civilian uh, who boxed in that um tournament to raise funds for his medical treatment. Uh, and so there were cops who were saying, you know what, off duty, we're also going to put out the word. So there was all this pressure on the, on the, on the uh, drug gang on the block. They, so they had this meeting. And I said, look, all we want is for you to back off. You can't sell drugs during operation of our school hours, and you need to take the death threats off. And the guy said, done. And to, to his credit, we never, for the next several years, we never had any problems. And the head of that family actually ended up going to, to, to prison um, about six years later. And when I was in my new job at that large nonprofit that I had mentioned, I, I got a call from a federal institution. And it was this guy who had run the family drug business on the block. And he says, look, he says, I, I, I know that we went through a lot of change and pain. And he says, but I got nobody in my life now. He says, you can imagine, right? I had the money. I had everything. I've got nothing now, and my own family has rejected me. I've got nobody to write to. I've got nobody to put money in my commissary. 
He said, this is crazy, but if you could just write me once a month and put a couple of dollars in my commissary, he said, I'll never forget it. And um, that's what I did. And we stayed in touch as pen pals for the next few years. And um, then I got message word from him that he was getting out um, and he was going to buy me dinner anywhere I wanted. But he first had business in, in Miami to take care of. Um, we never had that dinner. He was shot and killed in Miami. Um, but but it, it, it was it was it was a rough time back then. And uh, I had I had learned about post-traumatic growth, figuring out how to move forward early on. Um, I remember coming home from high school happy about a track meet. I guess it was ninth or tenth grade um, where I had done fairly well. And I, I was getting off the subway, walking home. I saw these clouds of smoke. And I'm like, oh, man, summertime and somebody's house is burning. Well, it turns out it was my house that had burned down, um, probably arson. And, you know, my parents didn't miss a beat. And I still think back to why I wasn't traumatized by coming home from this elite private school where it was tough enough just to keep up. And, and now your house is burned down with your books and, and your keepsakes and and you know, all of that stuff. Uh, but my parents made that kind of thing seamless. Um, and it went back even earlier than that. Um, they were told by friends about a doctor at Rockefeller University who was providing care for families who wanted top-notch uh, medical care for their kids, but couldn't afford it. And this doctor's providing it for free. Uh, I became one of this doctor's patients. It was uh, later discovered that um, this doctor was a serial pedophile. And, uh, he, he, you know, he made the newspaper and, um, it, it's something that I had to keep to myself for a long time, but that in an early age as a preteen, I had made the decision that I was going to be one adult that no matter what any child's circumstances were, I was going to be one adult that that child would be able to trust because this pr medical professional had betrayed me, somebody that you, you know, you don't think that's not supposed to happen. Right. And my, my parents, as I said, taught, taught us about post-traumatic growth, um, taught, us, taught us about sacred wounds, taught us about, you know, do, how, how do you move forward? And, and they taught us about understanding the virtues that, that we needed to develop and, and cherish, such as love, courage, wisdom, self-discipline or self-mastery, um, as opposed to just serving one's self. So, you know, all of that goes into the background as well. Wow. You, you know, um, you know, I don't know your parents, but they sound amazing. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, your parents were very much, I guess you would say on the, their, they were, I guess, ahead of their time because all the things that you're talking about are the things that now, you know, um, parents think about um, teaching their children. So, um, uh, yes, you had, uh, I guess that you would say, uh, uh, amazing um, uh, uh, roots are starting um, or a foundation. Um, now, I wanted to start to see how can people um, learn from all the different things that you have uh, been through and start to push themselves to uh, be the change makers that they wish to be. Or I think that we are in a time that everybody kind of needs to be a change maker. There's no choice. Um, sort of like uh, what you had, it was just that you were pushed into that direction. And I think we are definitely in that time where people don't have a choice that we need to um, be change makers, whatever avenue um, that sparks our interest, whether that's, uh, you know, for uh, social 
um, types of issues, the environment, uh, you know, personal or spiritual growth, um, that uh, everybody has to, uh, you know, uh, pick their assignment and get to work. That's what I think that we, where we face or where we're, um, where we are right now. Hello, everyone. It's Anne-Marie from the Project Good Podcast. Change always starts somewhere. Reach people who care about what you care about. Advertise on the Project Good Podcast today by contacting us at projectgood.org slash podcast. So one of the things um, that I wanted to um, talk to you about is that how, I guess, how can people get past, um, I think the biggest thing that keeps coming up for people is that they have all these um, uh, social barriers that they they have in their, I guess, in their minds, or sometimes it's not even their minds that they see that in society. Because that's the thing that I see that is uh, played out a lot in the media. So we know that there's all these problems that need um, fixes and changes and help. But then there's also this element of uh, people having, um, I guess for lack of a better term, kind of a mental breakdown of the personal trauma that they have experienced from people in society. So how do we get past that um, uh, you know, that, that barrier that each of us is facing I- internally to start to become the best version. That's a no, big that's question. Fun. I and, and as I had <laughs> mentioned, I learned early on uh, around 91 or 92 that I needed to, to, uh, figure out how to, you know, this, the saying is put on your, your own, um, oxygen mask before you put it on anybody else. Right. That's the instruction they give you on the airplane. And I had been giving so much to, 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 to young people. And, and I found it taking a toll on, on me and I needed to figure out what does that oxygen mask look like for me. And so it was that 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 group of self-care practices. Everyone needs to have a self-care practice. Uh, if, if you don't, you're, you're not going to make it very far, no matter what your intentions are. And, and I still find myself having to catch myself um, and making sure my oxygen mask is on first. And so I have a daily practice of, of breath work. I'm a certified breath work coach. Um, I created a, a breath work coach training program in a maximum security prison for teenage boys, because these were young people who had taken from society and we first needed to get them to, to figure out for themselves who they needed to be and understand whatever trauma they were holding. And the best way to do that is through the breath. Meditation isn't necessarily for everybody. Breath work is an accessible uh, option for just about anybody. So having that, then understanding, you know, what are the things that you value? Early on, if people say, what's most important to you? The top three things I would be able to name would would be uh, freedom, uh, service, and creativity. And so if any endeavor I was looking to get into didn't include at least two of those three, and ideally all three, and then the older I get, the more I look for all three to be included, um, and, 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 and you know that's no negotiation on that, uh, the better off people will be. Most people move through life unconsciously, and they don't, they're not conscious of the pain that they're feeling. They just know that there's something there that's blocking them. Uh, they don't know what are the things that they value the most. They don't understand the concept of, of, of virtue. There's one of the things that's particularly troubling is, is the lack of uh, gratitude that, that pervades society at, at every level. And so early on, developing a gratitude practice. I'm, I'm part of a group, uh, there's this woman named Danielle Laporte. And, and there was a time where uh, 
well, I was just going through some some very tough times. Um, and 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 there were two people that I looked to online, and I've since become friendly with one of them. Danielle Laporte's one of them, and and she had a program that that, that talked about um, looking at, at the virtues that you should embrace, uh, doing an inventory emotionally, and and growing from that. And so it was Danielle Laporte, and then this survivalist guy who's a duck farmer out west. I mean, so it was a strange combination, but too often people. Uh, operate in an echo chamber and they don't there's 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 not the idea lab that that i grew up in my parents and i it's, it's some people would say it's a curse i think it's a blessing uh, early on my parents they, they they we would have a hand down clothes but any book we wanted they it didn't matter if it if it didn't make sense like why are you getting this book that's way beyond your reading level you you have this book in what they would buy us books it didn't matter and that was always open um and and so i had a library that until i moved to mississippi was i think three or four thousand books um i sold and gave away some i still have over a thousand books that i brought down to mississippi um and 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 so it was an idea lab that i grew up in but people too often now operate in an echo chamber they surround themselves with influences and energy that are the same as, as, as the stuck energy that they're operating in. And who was it? Um, Einstein or whoever said, uh, you're, you're not going to change a problem with the, with the same, uh, thinking that got you there in the first place, something to that effect. Uh, you need to figure out a way to, to, to step outside of that. Uh, nutrition, right. Is another thing that early on, both for myself and and for the kids that I was working with, to this day at the school that I started with my brother, they still serve vegetarian meals, very healthy meals. I'm not a vegetarian. Um, I was never a vegetarian, but we wanted to shake up the diet of the kids who we were working with. And so we would go the extra mile. And at the time, there weren't a lot of options. It was the local Korean market where we would have access to fresh vegetables and so forth. And we would we would try to make it culturally relevant. Most of the, it, the families were black or, or Puerto Rican, and so we would ask. And 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 we had Rastafarian families, and so we would ask them to come in and help pitch in and 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 make healthy, nutritious meals for lunch or or for special events. And it's something that always stayed with those children. It's something that I'm trying to bring down here. The the place in in where I am in, in Tallahatchie County is a remote rural region designated by the USDA. The USDA also designates it as a, as a food desert. So you, you are not going to be at your spiritual, energetic best if you are putting in substances that, that, are, that are less than healthy. So th there, there are a number of practices. Being clear about who you are through, through and there's something called the VIA Institute, V-I-A Institute, where people can go and, and they can get an inventory after a survey um, based on, on the virtues that they embrace. And, and being able to step back and taking a look at, at who you are is a start. Having a wellness routine, eating healthfully, which is part of that wellness routine, developing a morning practice, bookending your day with an evening practice where you wind down, where you, where you, you take yourself off social media, where you reflect, 
Take yourself out of areas where you you are are engaged in an echo chamber where everybody's repeating the same thing. It becomes a dogma. There's no nuance. There's no sophistication. There's no compassion for other ideas. You need to get out of those situations as well. Those are just some of the things that that um, you know I would suggest. And so you have to know who you are. And 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 when you know who you are, you'll begin to understand how you're supposed to act in the world. Um, people are told to look for balance in life. I know, look for satisfaction, look for harmony. You, you, if, if you're passionate and making a difference, sometimes balance is gonna be out, out the window. And, and so those are just some of the things I, I would suggest. Those are wonderful um, suggestions. And actually you're hitting on things that I think people are just becoming attuned to. Um, and, you know, and, and when I, why I say that in all the, you know, um, popular, um, like, uh, magazines and of course, well, I guess self-help has been saying that for a long time. It's just, uh, I guess if people decided to pick it up or not, um, but, uh, you know, um, uh, magazines that are, um, uh, popular are now saying these things that you have mentioned of, you know, really getting to know who you are. And I think a lot of people, um, they're, they're scared. They're scared to, uh, really take that, uh, deep look in the mirror and take that deep dive. But I think if, uh, we would have done that a long time ago, um, that, uh, we wouldn't have gotten to that situation, the situation we're in. And well, I think the whole pandemic, I guess, made you look at the mirror sometimes literally, cause there was nobody else to see, um, and, uh, really spend that time with yourself. And it made people freak out <laughs> uh, to say uh, for the for the uh, best way I can um, uh, put it is that uh, people have uh, just been freaking out because they they realized um, they didn't like uh, what was reflecting back to them um, for themselves and um, society. And so as a, uh, a change maker who has touched so many different things, you, you, you know, you've touched law, you've touched education. Um, you've uh, touched uh, uh, self-development. Um, what would you say is your, your, I guess, the thing that you're most proud of or the thing that you think has made the, the greatest impact on, uh, on you and maybe other people? Well, Henry, I have to be careful with that because, first of all, I'm old, right? So there, there have been a few things. And, and, and so one, of course, is the school that's, you know, in its, in its third decade and, and, and the number of lives. And I see that on social media. I see it with the young people who went through and, and, and are still in contact. And, 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 and I, I'll ask people, just because I try to get a gauge, how many of you stay in touch with your middle school head of school 30 years later, right? And, it, and it, it, it's, it, the numbers aren't huge, right? Um, so so I, I, I get to see that immediately. But then there's some other things. I mean, one is um, I, I had started a girl's school uh, in, in, in the 90s, late 90s, uh, in India for lower caste Hindu and Muslim girls. And it was hard to keep it going. And, and, and one of the reasons it was hard to keep going is when I would ask people for funding, they would either say, and I get it, you know what, no, our giving is, is, is in New York or the United States or whatever. Or they would ask, well, where, where are those girls going to university? And, 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 and we didn't have, me and my local partner, we didn't have an answer for that local university piece because these were girls, some preteen, who we were keeping from marriage, uh, child marriage to, 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 to grown men. 
um, who we were taking out of out of poverty by giving them basic literacy and numeracy skills so that they could then move up in a, in, a, in a factory job. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a group that, that, that is, is mainly comprised of women who have been um, burned with acid because of, of violations of, of, of whatever marital rules happened in, 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 these, in these lower caste areas, right? And so we worked with dozens of, of, of young girls. Maybe there's some that went, to, we had to eventually close it because um, my, my head of school was, was, had become a grandmother and we were also getting increasing threats from Hindu and Muslim fundamentalists about the fact that we were educating not just girls, but lower caste girls and Hindu and Muslim girls together. And so I decided you, 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 I can't put you, my local partner at risk. We need to shut it down. Um, but during that time, we changed dozens of girls' lives. And so, you know, how do you measure that? I, I'm not sure. Um, I started an independent high school for kids who had dropped out of high public high school when I moved on to that larger nonprofit. Got a, a, a generous million-dollar gift uh, to, to, to get that started. And um, I'm, I'm still in touch with, with those young people who, who were in the, the – um, I guess it's 2002 to 2008 or 2009, whatever that, that high school ran. Uh, and I'm still in touch with, with, with most of those young people there. And they're all doing with, with only a couple of exceptions wonderfully, you know, young people who had been, um, given IEPs and were in special ed who are actually are now completing, who have completed their dissertation for their PhD. Right. Um, but, but they, they saw somebody believed in them. We, we took them out and, and, gave them experiential education, service learning programs in, in Nicaragua, in Senegal, in Ghana, where they saw other parts of the world and, and learned to be more grateful about what they had here growing up, despite whatever challenges they had. And so, you know, that's also what, what I'm proud of. I, I come down here and, you know, I've been to the, in the, living in the Delta for a year. I'm, I'm in a double wide trailer, which is something I never thought I would have said. In a, in a tornado zone where, uh, in, in, in the kind of housing where I'm 15 to 20 times more likely to die um, if a tornado hits, right? And, and um, it's, it's, it's a remote rural region in, and with everything that that conjures up. And so I oftentimes have to take stock of, you know, are, are you, and I, I still will have friends or, or, or corporate headhunters saying, look, you could be making four times as much money working with even more kids because it would be in an urban area and you wouldn't have to worry about uh, tornadoes, right? Um, so d d d how do I value that kind of a move versus being down here for a region that has been historically traumatized by things like slavery, sharecropping, a 1927 flood that changed all the dynamics, manufacturing that left, resource extraction, uh, human exploitation of labor, just historical with, 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 with families that had their dreams ripped from them and who were never able to pass on the ability to dream to succeeding generations, right? Um, is, is, is this a, a Quixotic quest doing, I'm tilting at windmills, uh, by, by trying to work with, 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 with these kids. Um, the town I'm in, 45% persistent poverty rate. I pick up kids on Saturdays uh, from a place that is an 86% persistent poverty rate. The highest maternal and infant mortality rates, the highest obesity rates, the lowest life expectancy. Does it make sense? Can I make a difference? I believe that the answer is yes. 
Uh, am I doing it at a scale that everybody would appreciate? There are not going to be thousands of people necessarily affected immediately by the work that, that we do. But uh, again, it's planting trees under whose shade other people will, will rest in. Not me, but other people. And so that's what I look forward to. So there are a number of things, whether it's that, that first school that's up and running, whether it's that girls' school in India, whether it's that independent uh, high school for kids who had dropped out of high school, whether, whether it's uh, my time here, the work that I did in the, uh, the, 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 the prison for, for boys. I, I don't know. I, you can't follow them because they, they're teens. Some of them will never get out. But you have to hope that those boys who, instead of snow angels, we would make uh, soil angels when we would, because I, I did vegetable gardening with them. And they immediately wanted to drop down and, 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 and make the image of an angel in the soil. They were, they were reminiscing about times either down, you know, in, the, in this deep south in the States or, or had come across from another country, uh, times where they had grown with grandparents, the food that, that, that sustained them. Um, who knows where that's going to carry them? The kids that I did breath work there, hopefully they will be able to find some peace. So it's hard for me to estimate, but it's, you know, the butterfly effect that, that you, you, you hope you, you lay down those things. And I know people who are all about scale, all about replicability. I'm all about scales of humanity and, and individual touch and, and the belief that some of these things that, that I've done will be passed on to these other people in their lives um, as, as they have an example that they hadn't had in the past. So that doesn't exactly answer the question, but those are just some of the things that, that, that I'm going to, when I put my head down finally to, to rest, um, that I'm going to take with me. I love that you say that, you know, instead of about scale, you're you're about getting uh, about the individual and touching humanity and making those personal touches that um, I believe, you know, from a personal perspective, tend to have a stronger ripple effect because you developed a relationship. Um, you know, it's hard to develop relationships with like thousands and thousands or millions of, uh, you know, people, but you can make a much more deeper connection with, you know, maybe a few hundred or, you know, uh, or, um, you know, a smaller, a smaller amount um, that tends to last for years and years because you got to know them as a person and not just a number. Um, one of the things also that I've, I've found with uh, all the different um, uh, experiences that you have had and the different uh, schools that you've started and programs and organizations um, is that there always seems to be, and you know, and it's expected that it's going to be a challenge to get something started. That's expected. But it seems that the, the biggest barriers that I see that keep popping up in every time that um, you talk about a challenge that you face tend to come from the actual either communities or, um, you know, or the people themselves, I guess. Why, and I've seen this as a theme, not just for you, but just across the board. Why is it so hard for people who need the help to help themselves? Why do you think that um, society makes it uh, uh, so hard for people to do that? It's, 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 there are certain aspects of society where their job is to train people to, to be willing recipients of, of whatever the ethos is that, that, that's going to help that segment of, of government, for instance. Um, it, 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 it doesn't, for people to, to be individually liberated is not in everybody's best interests. And 
it, it, it pays to make people willing recipients of charity and largesse. Uh, as opposed to independent actors with who are self-sufficient, who have their own personal agency. Um, if, if you have people who start to question their circumstances, who start to push back and say, is this enough? Who start to ask, well, hold it. This, this, this school system that my child is in is at best an escalator, and, and I'm not even lucky enough to have that escalator go up. Let me, let me step off and see if, 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 if being schooled can be done differently, um, if education is in fact different. It's, 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 there, there's a larger group in society for whom it's in their best interest to maintain, again, that, that, that level of dependency. And that, that kind of unspoken relationship works out for both sides. Um, people love us when we do food giveaways here. And, and, and when I ask for volunteers to, okay, well, let's either figure out ways where we can start a, a, a you know, chicken coops for fresh eggs, uh, where we can avoid the chickens getting killed by the chemical drift, which is another feature of the Mississippi Delta, or community vegetable gardens with the same deal, protecting and, and making sure that we have high level produce so that, and, 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 and engage in conversations about what it means to eat well. Uh, and, and those hands don't go up when I will say, um, I'm going to get up extra early on Saturday because normally I'm on Saturday, I'm working with the teens and letting them come to the gym where they can commune and be with one another, which is important. But for the younger kids, I'm going to create uh, an early literacy program science-based um, for anybody who's concerned about their kids reading ability now or in the future. Uh, let's do this. And three Saturdays in a row, I'm the only one there with all my materials that I'm thinking I look cute with. Right. Um, it's, it's that level of dependency is built in, 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 in the Delta. It's, it's, again, it's the residue of a system of, of, of sharecropping of slavery, of, the biggest employer being a, a notorious prison um, and, and people have been beaten down. And so I try to maintain compassion for those people, but we also have to have direct conversations where I'm not going to allow this to happen to your children and to your grandchildren. That's not why I'm here. Um, and, and so that, that discussion continues. And it's one of the, one of the nice things about being able to put out, pull out my Medicare card, because when people talk about, you don't know, you're, you haven't been on earth as long as I have, like, you know what, I'm getting there and I'm a senior citizen. So if you want to talk senior citizen to senior citizen and what our responsibilities are, let's have that conversation. But, but let's not just think that, that, uh, you know, getting bingo prizes, uh, is, is, is going to be the end of the day for, for, for what my job is here. That that's not what it's going to be. And it's why I went into something called the Yas prize, which uh, is in its third year started by Jeff and Janine Yas. And, uh, it's for education. It rewards education innovation. And I'm like, well, who, okay, who's going to pay attention to this small community center that hasn't even done in terms of education innovation, what it's going, it's claiming it's going to do, which is create, uh, a, a, mic, a, a network of micro schools. But I was urged to just go ahead, apply anyway. And so I had a second thought when I found out there were going to be 2,700 applicants. Um, I still applied. 
And it was a multi-month process. It took a lot out of me. But we made it down to 33 out of 2,700, which got us a, uh, a $200,000 grant and an incredible network and, and a way of thinking about education down here in the Delta that is going to make us some enemies because, again, we are going to confront existing systems that, that nurture themselves and, and are, are a source of patronage for, for, for one another and that have been part of the history here. And I get it. However... That's my job is to disrupt that for the young people that I have sworn to work with since those days when I was a preteen. And so we're going to be creating a network of micro schools where kids are going to be engaged in the kind of learning that I've always tried to bring project based experiential where you meet the learner where they are where you're going to take you know cutting edge things like drones and robotics but also combine them with African American traditional African-American quilting with the blues, with the civil rights trail here, right? Because the town that I work in is the place where Emmett Till's body was prepared for transport back to Chicago. The, 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 the trailer that I live in is in a county where the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer was raised. So combining both the old and the new, but giving these young people a sense of their own power and their need to gain agency, self-sufficiency, and to project that power into the world and to reach back to the other kids in this community once they've moved on and, and moved forward are, are some of the things that, that uh, you know, we're taking on now. You've brought up, I think, um, at the biggest keys that I think that we need to look at for moving forward or how... Um, I guess change needs to happen because I was almost going to ask you the question about uh, do we really want change? Like everybody's screaming change, but it could just be, I guess, a fad, right? Like the latest T-shirt. Um, and so you've brought up things like I think the, the biggest thing that I kept kind of feeling is that we need um, now it's going to rhyme a little bit um, that uh, a healing needs to happen within people. Um, before they could even get to a point of thinking about real change, which takes place when you decide that you have uh, self-agency or that you can do this, that you can, you know, dig deep inside of you and move forward. And so it is... Um, you know, you, you've... Uh, this, is, this is what I've, I've pulled from the, your conversation. That is... Um, that is a, a a massive, massive, massive challenge <laughs> because that requires the movement of eight eight billion people um, and counting um, and and so for each person, if we really, really want change, is that we have to each do that uh, that healing that healing journey um, and then. And then really, really dig deep. And then we have to kind of, um, I don't want to say forget, but we have to say, okay, we've learned some tough lessons from our past, not just here in the U.S., but uh, uh, across the world, because um, the things that you've uh, you know, brought up um, were not just happening here in the U.S. They've happened in many countries around the world. Um, and then we have to say, okay, what, you know, we, we learned a lesson or 
um, or we know not to want to do that again. Um, and that each of us, you know, um, needs to just like, uh, we got to, we got to find that, uh, I guess, gravado <laughs> down deep. So, I mean, there are a few things, right? That the, the, the I, I can't even talk about ancient philosophers in certain circles because it's not politically correct. However, I do that here and there's a reason. Uh, but, you know, Aristotle said that courage is the most important virtue that because if you if you don't have courage, then all the other virtues don't matter. And you, you talked about it as well. And and so that development of courage is is, is one of the, the pieces of the foundation that has to be there. Right. Um, there's and, 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 and so people need to get on that quest and there are ways of doing that. There's also a concept in, in, in Japanese art of called Kintsugi. And so you have broken pieces of pottery that most people say, well, it's broken. Let me throw it away. In this Japanese art, you take this gold lacquer and, and, and you put those pieces together and wrap this gold around it so that it's viewed as something even more beautiful than it was in, it, in its original shape. And, and, and it, but it was broken, right? But now it's put back together more beautiful than before. People have to understand that whatever else is going on in their lives, they can embrace this concept of Kintsugi and, and, and put something back together again that's even more beautiful, even, even more profound. There's also something to the, to the point of the number of people that this has to affect. There's a, a Columbia professor by the name of Erica Chenoweth who has something called the three and a half percent rule. And through her studies, she has found that if you want to um, overthrow uh, nonviolently, nonviolently overthrow a society, you need to change the minds of just three and a half percent of the population. So I'm, I'm, I'm. That's something that I hold in front of me down here in 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 this small county, uh, and in this area of the Delta, uh, and and I, I think again that the butterfly effect, those kinds of things, and and I think. That three and a half percent, yes, it has to start with people healing themselves. And then as they move beyond that, uh, that kind of growth will happen. And I also do think, true, that, yes, people talk about change and a lot of people, that's all they want to do is talk about it. I've had to remove myself from certain circles where, again, I, I it's, 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 uh, an over, overworked term at, at this point, but but virtue signaling is is more important than than actual impact. And I've I've had to take myself out of some of those circles because no, I'm not going to talk about you know how 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 this looks again in this echo chamber. Let's have an exchange of ideas. Let's figure out how we can move forward. It's why I'm going to be working with Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, um, in a classics program. And people, I've had people say, "What you? Why are you working with young black kids?" on on classics and i'm not going to go into it here but but if anybody wants to engage me offline i'd be more than happy to talk about it um and it goes from everything from as simple as them understanding the latinate roots of the words that are going to improve what are in fact right now the lowest act scores in the country um to, to understanding about certain essential verifiable truths that that have lasted for thousands of years that that undergird any decent spiritual tra uh, tradition or any place that has ever grown right and and so the classics are as good a place as any to start and i will certainly take the ancient 
you know, dead white philosophers that, that people sometimes deride over, over, over some of the, the current pundits, pundits that we have who have not actually done anything in, in their lives other than criticize. So those are just a few things. Yes. Yeah. Because um, I'm with you with the, you know, um, like I mentioned, is, is change just the T-shirt <laughs> that everybody wants because, you know, you see it everywhere. You know, we got to change this. We got to change that. Yay. And like people literally will sometimes do that and go, yay, change. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it becomes like a, a trend. You see it on these commercials, everything. It's like, uh, you know, uh, it's a. Uh, it's um uh, it's a marketing uh, uh component right um and so yeah if we if we really want change we got to do it's uh it's going to be hard it's uh as somebody was uh, telling me as they refer to everything it's iron maiden work <laughs> um so we got out there you know put on our our war gear because it's you know you got to fight with yourself inside and then you know and then you're going to have to fight outside so um, you know, it doesn't mean that it can't have some elements of fun, but um, it, it's going to be it's going to be a grueling process that I don't know if uh, um, a lot of people are up to in the the society um, because they tend to, or at least nowadays, seem to get tired easily. No, they really. So, so I'm sorry. Let me just that that brings up a concept that that of and, and I kind of talked about it before with the wellness piece, but but zest, right? Um, how do you you need zest to 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 provide uh, energy to to the to your work to your love relationships all that and and again right the, the the zest is developed through things like breath work through things like exercise through things like eating properly but you're right people don't necessarily have the energy for that and 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 some of it is at a, a basic cellular energetic level that. People can work on, right? There are ways of doing it. You just have to make the decision to do it. And sometimes that means, all right, if I'm going to make space for that, what's the one thing I'm going to stop doing? And and that might be spending as much time on social media or network news or in those echo chambers that I keep talking about uh, and, and instead substituting a more important personal practice that improves your zest so that you bring energy to the things that you claim um, are important to you. So that that's important. Yes. Um, I just have uh, three more questions for you. Um, one of them is just a practical question, um, just because you've done so much. Uh, do you pick your projects or do your projects pick you? It's a little bit of both. I, 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 I still run things through the filter of creativity, freedom, and service and so i'm i am open and i i my spiritual beliefs allow me to and you know some people call it manifestation or whatever but uh i i remain open to what god brings me i mean that's that's being down in mississippi i didn't that chose me um again part of post-traumatic growth um February of 2022, I got a knock on the door and some tattooed guy. And I, at this time I had moved with my family to the Hudson Valley because I wanted my two youngest kids to see some grass and, and, and nature. Uh, and it was a good move. And this guy's the back door saying, look, don't shoot me, but I got something for you. I'm like, it's 630 and let me finish my coffee. Why are you here? 
and I eventually opened the door and he says, uh, you've been served. Uh, she's tired of being married to you. He says, I'm sorry. Right. So um, a couple of decades of marriage were down the drain. And I, I at that point asked God in the universe where, where you know, I, you fall down in a ball and cry out me. But no, that's not how I was raised. That's not what I had gone through. Um, I asked God, where do you want me next? And this, this 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 position here was not well advertised, if at all. And if it was, it wasn't national. It was local. So I'm not sure how I came across it. And there were other options. And I had friends urging me to pursue those other options because it would I would remain up north, be better paid, uh, closer to them, and so forth. I get it, but this is what called me. And so it, it was a combination. Um, I, I I again I will also energetically during prayer and meditation put out feelers about what I'm supposed to do in a particular arena. Uh, and, and there's that I, but it, it's remaining open to, 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 to what God and the universe are, are, are asking of me. And that's what happened when I stopped practicing law. That was again, another potentially traumatic occurrence. As I said, I lost friends around that because they knew that I was this Ivy league lawyer and, and, and you're going to start a, what you're going to be a, a school teacher. Um, but that's what called to me. I, I didn't say, let me stop practicing law. Let me stop making this six-figure salary to try to raise money. And I started that school with $50,000, $25,000 from a professional gambler. And the other $25,000 was John F. Kennedy Jr., who was a, a schoolmate, a, a colleague in the district attorney's office, and a friend of mine got from what was then the fairly new Robin Hood uh, Foundation. He got me the other $25,000 uh, and, and, and stayed a supporter for years after that. Uh, but I, did, I didn't just say, you know what, let me start a school in East Harlem at, at a time where they're the highest recorded homicides on record in this, in this, in this city. Um, no, that, that, I was called to that. But, but there are certain other things that I will move towards more uh, aggressively, but that's more on a, on a tactical level. Now, my next question is, if you were to start life again or all over, uh, what would you do differently? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't think there's anything I would change. Um, there's nothing I would change. I, I, I can't. I, I, I just know that I, I wouldn't have ended up here, for instance, if just the slightest deviation, whether it's in terms of professional uh, relationships or romantic relationships or I, I, I would have been somewhere else, but here is where I'm supposed to be. And I, I think it would have been a deviation from, um, and again, that, that kind of goes against saying, uh, you know, we have free will and that, that there's a lot of debate around what actual free will looks like, but I'm comfortable with where I am and the level of free will I've been able to exercise through the choices that I've made. There are certain things I would, it might've done a little quicker. I might've left the practice of law a little quicker. Um, I, I, I might've changed certain relationships that I had with certain board members, but, but the overall path there, there I don't think there's anything I would have changed. Wow. Usually people have their lists. Um, but, um, that's uh, wonderful that you are, uh, I guess you've found that, uh, one of the questions I had, but I thought you kind of answered it was you've really found that, um, you know, I guess inner contentment and ability to, you know, still be objective yourself, but also have self-acceptance which is, uh, you know, I guess the model that we need for really pushing forward for change. Um, 
Now, my last question uh, to help everyone is how do you live an extraordinary life as an ordinary person? By examining the things that, that you have reason to be grateful for, by figuring out who you are at your best, by understanding what allows you to be at your best, what, what is the environment who are the people? What are the steps that you take to be at your best? And just recreating that every day. And that every day you have the opportunity to be at your best. Doesn't matter what happened before. Doesn't matter what went on and, and the things that you might regret. It, a lot of it is that mindfulness aspect of being in, in the now, being, being present. And that you can always start over again each time you open your eyes, take that breath, Feel where you are and understand that, that, that you can start by being good to yourself and then just one other person and that effect and that energy will, will radiate. And, and if everybody were to do that, um, again, I think we would see uh, a, a lot more cooperation, collaboration, uh, safe conversations where people would be willing and able to share their challenges, their struggles, their hopes, their fears and their dreams. And, and, you know, maintain your dreams, but figure out what's one thing you can do today to move yourself towards that dream. And, and, you know, there's that, there's a philosophy called win. It's an acronym for what's important now. So forget what, how you got sidelined, what's in front of you, what's important now, and what are you going to do to take that next step forward? Perfect. Perfect ending. Thank you, Hans, for your time and insight. To learn more about Hans Hagelman, go to tutwilercommunityeducationcenter.org. If you have a passion for an unserved community, a social justice problem, or simply want to change minds, contact Project Good Work at projectgood.org to start your project of change today. It's that time again. The Changemaker Conference is happening again May 23rd, 2024. Register now at changemakerconference.com. Subscribe to our mailing list at projectgood/slash/subscribe to get our episodes and blog articles sent to you each month. Plus, get a 10% discount on any project you start on projectgood.org. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Project Good, where we're focused on what matters. 